The scripture reading this afternoon is from the epistle to the Romans, the letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 26 to 30. It's on page 1201. Romans 8, verses 26 to 30. This is the famous passage where we often quote, God turns everything for our good, and we'll read it in its context. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, as also part of our reading, let's turn to Belgic Confession, Article 13. Belgic Confession, Article 13. It's on page 503 of the Book of Praise. The Providence of God. We believe that this good God, after he had created all things, did not abandon them or give them up to fortune or chance, but that according to his holy will, he so rules and governs them that in this world, nothing happens without his direction. Yet, God is not the author of the sins which are committed, nor can he be charged with them. For his power and goodness are so great and beyond understanding that he ordains and executes his work in the most excellent and just manner, even when devils and wicked men act unjustly. And as to his actions surpassing human understanding, we will not curiously inquire farther than our capacity allows us. But with the greatest humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us. And we content ourselves that we are pupils of Christ, who have only to learn those things which he teaches us in his word without transgressing these limits. This doctrine gives us inexpressible consolation, for we learn thereby that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the direction of our gracious Heavenly Father. He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures so under his power that not one hair of our head, for they are all numbered, nor one sparrow can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this we trust, because we know that he holds in check the devil and all our enemies so that they cannot hurt us without his permission and will. We therefore reject the damnable error of the Epicureans, who say that God does not concern himself with anything but leaves all things to chance. The text for this afternoon is the truth of God's word as summarized in Lord's Day 10 of the Halberd Catechism. What do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power. 
whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. Dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to give you three statements that is related to providence. These three statements may or may not be correct. You can test yourself whether you understand God's providence accurately. One, concerning everything that happens in this world, God is in control. Number two, concerning everything that happens in this world, God does them. Three, concerning everything that happens in this world, God has a purpose. What do you think? Are all three of these statements correct? Although they might sound similar, the second statement has a problem. If you believe the second statement that with everything that happens in this world, God does them, we will be charging him with sin because sin happens in this world. There are evil people in this world. Although we hear a lot about God's providence, sometimes it can be confusing. And if we don't understand God's providence correctly or accept it in faith correctly, it can cause us to be bitter and resentful. And we can read an instance of this in Proverbs 19, verse 3. There we can read, A person's own folly leads to their ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. And haven't we all done something like this to one degree or another? Errors like that arise from misunderstanding what God teaches us about his providence. But understood correctly, God's providence can be something that strengthens us in our faith and builds us up. So today we'll be focusing on the topic of God's providence with the following theme, our Father's providence. And we'll consider two points. First, we'll deal with the meaning of providence. And second, we'll deal with how this benefits us when we understand it correctly. We confess in answer 27, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hands, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures. When we confess that he upholds everything, what do we mean by that word, uphold? 
That means that God sustains and preserves everything. That means that God feeds every living creature. He makes them alive. He gives them their existence. We just sang about in Psalm 104 that he feeds every creature in this earth, on this, in this world, from the single-celled organisms to the great blue whale. And we're not just talking about him giving food. We're also talking about the ability to eat the energy to digest, all the organs functioning properly, that's all from God as well. You can say that God upholds the very existence of everything. In Colossians 1 verse 17, Paul writes that in Christ all things hold together. That means without Christ, without God, everything is going to fall apart. Even as you're sitting here in the pew, every single cell, God upholds it keeps it together in Christ. That's what we confess about God's providence. He upholds everything. And secondly, concerning God's providence, we say that he, we confess it, so his soul governs everything, governs them that. All things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. To govern means to rule. God, as the king of the universe, as the king of heaven and earth, he controls and directs everything in this world. So everything works perfectly according to his plan. That includes everything from little insects to stones, the great planets in its orbit. We know from God's word that not a sparrow can fall from the sky, not a hair can fall from our head without God's will. It's also important to know that God not only controls like inanimate, non-living things like stones and planets, but also human beings, not just animals, but also human beings. And this is a bit more difficult to understand. This is mysterious because that's not how we experience life. We live this life as free agents, you might say. We make our own decisions. You are sitting here because you've chose to come to church. You came here. You use your legs to get here. That's how we experience this life, but God tells us there's more to the story. Read in Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whenever, wherever he will. We experience it as if we're making all the choices, but God's word tells us that God is in control even over that. So we have to interpret, understand our experience with the light of Scripture. There's more mystery here. When God tells us that God directs the heart of kings, he's not just talking about good kings, perhaps like David, but he's also talking about evil kings like Ahab. What's so difficult to understand and accept is that God is in control also of evil people. We can read about this in Job chapter 1. God there permits Satan to strike Job, and you read that the Sabaeans came and struck down his servants. The Sabaeans struck down the servants of Job. That is murder. 
That's sin. If this is what Job says, he says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Think about that. The Sabaeans murder his servants, and he says, Job says, The Lord has taken away. And you can't say Job must be mistaken here, because in the very next verse, God says, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That means Job is correct in pointing out that even when the Sabaeans struck his servants, God was in control of that. Yet here we have to make a fine distinction. Although the Lord has taken away, it's incorrect to say that the Lord has killed Job's servants. He does not say that. It's like the second statement. It's wrong to say that God does everything in this world. Rather, we confess that God yet is not the author of the sins which are committed, nor can he be charged with them. You could, you could ask logically, if God is in perfect control of everything, including sinful people, how is it possible that he's not, he, we cannot charge him with sin? And this is where we have to exercise humility. Our logic, our minds cannot comprehend this. This is beyond our understanding. It's not illogical. It's, just, it's beyond our understanding. It transcends our logic. That's because our minds are corrupt with sin and also because our minds are finite. We are clay pottery. We're like a drop. We're less than a drop of a bucket in a bucket. And what do we know? This is a mysterious doctrine. And if we can't understand it, you might ask, why do we confess that God is not the author of sin? And that's because the scripture tells us so. God's word says in James 1 verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Think about that. God is in control with all circumstances. God is in control even of the tempter, Satan. But he does not tempt anyone. Can we understand this? No. Let me give you another example. We confess that all things come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand. We thank God when we have good desires, let's say to pray, to get involved, and so on. But what about evil desires? Is that from God's hand? No, the apostle John writes in 1 John 2, verse 16, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father. These are the exact words of Scripture. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. We confess that all things come to us by His fatherly hand. How can we understand this? We can't. No one can understand this. This is beyond our understanding. But we've got to stop where the Scripture stops. 
you accept this in reverence, in childlike faith. And when we do so, there are benefits. And with that, we come to the second point. In answer 28, we confess that we can be thankful in prosperity. Are you thankful in your prosperity or when you are prosperous? Not prideful, but thankful. I know you all are hardworking. Many of you are. And even if you worked hard for your prosperity, for your business, even if you worked hard for your health, we confess that we are thankful to God, not prideful. Because we confess that God upholds us. He gives us the talent. He gives us the breath in our lungs. He gave you the motivation, the self-discipline to do all these things. And this is the testimony of Scripture. Even that great apostle Paul, he writes, By the grace of God, I am what I am. He said, I worked harder than any of them, meaning the apostles. He worked harder than the, any of the apostles, but he says, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. It's by the grace of God that you have what you have, so you can be thankful in your prosperity. Second, you can be thankful and not concerned. You might wonder what are you talking about. Sometimes prosperity can be a cause of concern. People can be afraid of wealth because of its corrupting power, and rightly so. I'm sure you've heard that there are brothers and sisters across the world who are persecuted, who are in poverty, praying for us because we're so affluent. And we know ourselves that when things are going well, we are less prone to pray before God. We are less fervent in our prayer. So it's good to have a healthy respect for prosperity. Perhaps you don't think that way, but perhaps you're thinking of that for your children, for your grandchildren. They have everything that they need, and you might wonder, are they going to rely on God? This is also a biblical concern. You might know the prayer of Agur, give me neither poverty or riches, lest I be full and deny you, and say, who is the Lord? So it's understandable that we can be concerned in our prosperity, but let me balance that with the rest of Scripture. 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, you can read, Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thankfulness. Prosperity, affluence, health still comes from our fatherly hand. So instead of being concerned and anxious, you can be thankful. Secondly, we also confess concerning adversity, we can be patient in answer 28. We can be patient in adversity. I've come to realize that there is a lot of pastoral wisdom in this word, patient. Because you could argue, we could revise the catechism and say, we can be thankful in prosperity and we can be thankful in adversity. Because both come from God's fatherly hand. Why not be thankful for both? In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote 
Give thanks in all circumstances. But the catechism points to the fact that when you give thanks, that doesn't mean that you're always happy or joyful or something like that. There can be sadness. There can be grief. And that's what's captured in this word, patient. Why am I telling you this? Because there's a sense of guilt when we feel sad, when we struggle. Because God is in control and everything comes to us by his fatherly hand. How can I be sad? How can I be discouraged? But we confess that we can be patient in adversity. And part of the reason is because we live in a broken world. And this goes back to the first point that God is not the author of sin and he cannot be charged with sin. Why is this world so broken? Although God was in control, it was Adam and Eve who brought sin and suffering by sinning. Adam sinned, not God. God wasn't the author of original sin, nor can he be charged with it. Although God is in control of death and suffering, and he does use them for his purpose, God didn't bring them into the world. Adam did. And this is still mysterious, but when you are grieving the death of a loved one, when you are suffering because of your illness or your bro- the brokenness of this world, you don't have to feel the need to thank God for death itself or for suffering itself or illness itself because Adam brought them into the world. We cannot understand this, but God is not the author of sin. There are aspects in which we can be thankful for. We can trust that God is going to bring good about from it. But there is brokenness in this world, and we can be patient. We can weep. Yes, God is in control, but we can grieve. We can mourn. God allows us to do that. In fact, he encourages us to do so. Even though God is in perfect control, even though everything comes to us by his fatherly hand, he tells us in Ecclesiastes 3, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. God is in control, but he says there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. God gave us psalms to express our sadness and anguish. Psalm 42, verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night. We can even ask difficult questions. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Psalm 77, verse 9. Has he in anger shut up his compassion? In fact, even Jesus Christ wept the death of his friend Lazarus. Christ even questioned, taking the psalm upon his lips, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All these things we're allowed to do and also we're encouraged to do as well. And that's what the expression patient 
is doing here. We can grieve, we can weep, but not without hope. Right? That's why it's patient. We can be patient even in sickness and poverty because we know that God has good plans. You can be patient because you know it comes to you in his love. It's never out of hatred against you. It's never out of punishment for your sin because Christ has received all the punishment on the cross. There is no condemnation for you in Jesus Christ. So you can be patient in adversity knowing that God is going to turn it into good. And I'm not just talking about tragedies like natural disaster or illness, but also sin. God can bring out good even in sin, even out of sin, despite sin. If you are suffering because someone is sinning against you or someone has sinned against you, if you're suffering because of your sin, the truth that God is going to bring good out of it does not change still. God has good purposes for you. We read in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph there famously told his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You remember the story? It's when Joseph was sold into slavery. He experienced human trafficking because of the jealousy of his brothers. And later on, when Jacob died, his brothers were scared, and he asked them, please show mercy, please forgive the sins of your brothers. And he says, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me by selling me into slavery, but God meant it for good so that many people can be alive. That's because thanks to Joseph's dream and his ability to interpret and for his planning, Egypt could endure the seven years of famine. You see that the brothers of Joseph sinned against him, yet God brought about good. God brings about good in the face of tragedy and also in the face of evil. And if we were, if we were to ask, what kind of good are we talking about? Is it just good for others? Joseph saved others, but was it good for him as well? Is it good for me? And the answer is yes. A major part of God's good plan for you is your growth, your maturity, your purity, your holiness. Remember that God disciplines his sons and daughters because he loves them. He wants to form your character into something resilient, something beautiful, something holy. Do you know that that's also the point of Romans 8? Romans 8, verse 28, the verse that we so often quote. Why don't we turn there, go there, Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 28, page 1201. Verse 28 we read, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
Have you ever asked, what kind of good is he talking about? What does it mean by good? And the answer can be found if you keep reading. For those who are called according to his purpose, okay. There's good, there's purpose, there's good purpose. And what is it? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. That is his good purpose. To be conformed into the image of his son. To be like Christ. He's talking about being purified and refined, perhaps with suffering. If Christ learned obedience through suffering, we can read that he wept and he cried out to God because of suffering. You could get a bit of a sense of what's coming to you in your life. If Christ, who is sinless, had to learn obedience through suffering, how much more for us who, are, who actually have to struggle against and who actually needs to be purified? And this is the good that God is talking about. So when we say God is going to turn everything for our good, the main thing that Scripture tells us, God's Word tells us, is that we are going to be purified and refined. Perhaps this is not the answer you want to hear. You certainly won't like it when it happens. But God is forming your character to be like Christ. And this requires patience. Patient in adversity. Now, I don't know if any one of you grows strawberries. But let's say, suppose, let's suppose that I came over and you grow strawberries. And from your garden, I pick your unripe green strawberry. It hasn't been ripened yet. I take one of them, and I take a bite out of that. And it's tasteless, it's bitter, it's sour, and I comment, I thought you were a good gardener. I thought you were good at this. I guess not. Well, let's say, what if I came over for dinner? You invited me over for dinner, and you're going to prepare a beautiful, tasty meal for me. But I spot a just thawed raw ground beef. I take a spoon and eat a spoonful of it. And then I judge you for being a bad cook. What would you think? You probably will think that something is seriously wrong with this guy. But also that this is not a fair judgment. You are judging or evaluating my cooking. You are evaluating my strawberry way too early. It's in the middle of the process. It's not done. I haven't even started cooking. And that's how we are when it comes to God's providence. Way too often. We judge the situation way too early. God has amazing plans for you. He has good plans for you. And you are in the middle of the process, not at the end. It's not fair to judge God when you are in the process. It's not fair to God judge God or evaluate God's plan for you, God's work for you when it's not done. That strawberry would ripen given time. You would cook a beautiful meal if given time. And so it is with God's plan. God is working everything according to his beautiful plan. And at the end, when we evaluate then, I have no doubt that you will simply marvel at God's wonderful work 
and everything will be okay, more than okay. We will be eternally joyful. And wasn't that true even for the worst event in history? The gross miscarriage of justice, actually the outright framing of an innocent man, the brutal criminal execution of the only innocent human being, Jesus Christ. What if you were to judge and evaluate the work of God prematurely during the process before it was done? That's what the apostles often did, didn't it? Wasn't it? When the Jews were scheming against our Lord, when he was arrested, what if we judged God's work then? What if when we judged God's word or evaluated God's work when he was hanging on the cross or when he was still buried in the grave? What would the conclusion be? Would you conclude that God is a good God, that he has good plans? Or would you just conclude that this is a terrible tragedy, the worst tragedy ever? Probably so. And then you'll be wrong because that is the greatest work of God, the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The right time to evaluate the work of God is after the resurrection, after, in fact, the ascension. Only after that did the apostles see what God has done and praised God and even died to spread this gospel. Only then did they understand. Concerning the crucifixion, people meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to keep alive many people. And so it will be with your life as well. If God can turn the worst event in history to good, could he not do the same with your life? So whatever difficulties you are going through, trust God, be patient in adversity. God has amazing plans for you, and we know what he has planned for us. In Romans 8, I know there's suffering involved, but he says he's going to make us glorious. He's going to make us heirs with Christ with one condition, as I said, suffering, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. That's what God has planned for you, being glorified with Christ, sharing in his inheritance. So don't don't evaluate your situation during the process. Wait in faith. Be patient in faith. God has amazing plans for you. And also be confident, knowing that's what God has planned for you. With a view to the future, be confident Because nothing can stop God from fulfilling his plan. Nothing can stop God from loving us. Whether it's adversity or whether it's prosperity, you can be confident that nothing can separate you from the love of God. We confess these powerful words. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. This is powerful because when we say all creatures, we're not just talking about animals or human beings. We're also talking about Satan and the evil forces and all his dominion. You might even add that he's also talking about our sinful nature, the sin that resides in us. 
Without his will, Satan cannot so much as move. Without his will, sin in us cannot so much as move. That's why Satan asked for God's permission in the book of Job. In fact, without God's will, Satan cannot so much as exist because he owes his existence to God. God upholds even his life for his purpose, to show his justice. God is in perfect control of everything, all creatures. So who can separate us from the love of God? If you're worried, if you're anxious, if you're even depressed and despairing, impress on your heart and on your soul the words of Romans 8. Tell your soul over and over as many times as you need. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our God is almighty. And he rules us with his providence, with his almighty and ever-present power. Brothers and sisters, have confidence in the providence of God. Amen.